He humbled himself and washed the feet of his disciples. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master. His body, the bread, given for us. His blood, the wine, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. He carried our sins in his body on the cross, and with his final breath, he gave up his spirit. It is finished. But our Savior destroyed death and arose with our freedom in hand, proclaiming, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Well, good morning. It is good to see you. Good to have you here. Those of you here in Bellingham, those of you joining us in Skagit and Boca Raton at Trinity uh, Church of God, and those watching online, for those of you watching online, it's good to have you with us, and we apologize about last week, a couple of services were not able to be shown uh, streaming, so thank you for being with us today. This begins the start of what many refer to as Holy Week, or the Passion Week, or the Final Week, and I'll just tell you from my experience growing up in church as a little kid, this was Palm Sunday weekend, which meant... Every year at children's church or in Sunday school, we would make palm fronds out of green construction paper and we would wave them around and we would have a little parade. And as a third grader, I thought I was so creative, so clever that I was the first one in all of human history to recognize that Hosanna rhymed with banana. And it would be really fun to say banana, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. thought it was hilarious. And we also knew that with Palm Sunday, that while it was cool and we got to have our little palm fronts, that it was really just kind of the precursor of the real event, the real show. Now, granted, that week we knew that there would be a couple hours spent either at JCPenney's or Sears trying to find some new outfit. But the real show happened the next week because that's when the Easter baskets came with the jelly beans and the, and the little chocolate, uh, little uh, well, they were footballs, but um, eggs, yeah. And, and the bunnies that were primarily hollow, but still, that was the big deal. And that was what this season meant for me. Now, really, I know there were some other events like the resurrection of Christ and stuff, but that was, in my mind, that was what it was really all about. And what's interesting that so many of us who were raised in church had a similar experience, maybe not with the, the palm branches and the chocolate bunnies, but in church, it's like we have this, this time on, on Palm Sunday where we hear about this, this parade, and then we quickly jump over to the very next week, which is Easter and the resurrection of Christ. And it's like we go from this palm parade to this pastel party of Easter, and we skip everything in between. We go straight from Hosanna to He is Risen, and we either skip over or fast forward through all of the events that happen between those two Sundays. And it's just the opposite of what happens in the Gospels. The Gospel writers, by and large, completely skipped the first 30 years of Jesus' life, fast forwarded through the next three years, and then when it came to this last week, this holy week, they slow to a snail's pace. As we mentioned two weeks ago, nearly one-third of the content of the Gospels describes what happened in that one week. And so in this series four, we've decided to do the same thing, to slow down. And we're only looking at the last four days of that week, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and some events that took place. 
And in the first two weeks of this series, we even slowed down to just look at a, a meal, an evening meal on Thursday, this Last Supper, when Jesus washed his disciples' feet. And then last week, if you were not here last week, I would highly recommend you go online and watch last week's sermon where Pastor Kip talked about Jesus in the Passover and the things that had happened in Exodus and in, in uh, Israel's history, how they were all found their fulfillment in Jesus. Fascinating stuff. Connects the dots. Amazing message there. And so today we go from that Thursday on to the next day, which is Friday. And in church world, it's often referred to as Good Friday, which if you know the events, you wonder how did they ever come up with that name of Good Friday for this, this day in, uh, in the church history. I don't know, um, a little bit of quiz here. This isn't a very difficult quiz. If you speak two languages, they refer to you as bilingual. Yeah, and if you only speak one, they refer to you as American. But if you speak multiple languages, you're referred to as a polyglot. A polyglot is someone who speaks three or more languages. And a friend of mine, Sam Makarios, we refer to him as Sam. He's the tour guide that we use every uh, time we go to Israel. Sam is a polyglot. He speaks multiple languages. And one time I asked him, Sam, how many different languages can you do this Israel tour in? And he said, uh, five or six. He speaks more languages, but to do the entire tour, he can speak it in five or six different languages. Well, that's amazingly beneficial for him and the groups. But with knowing that many languages, sometimes there's little words that just kind of get mistranslated. And so on one trip, he kept talking to us, and he was talking about the events that happened on this Friday, and he kept referring to it as Great Friday. And I just thought, you know, this is wonderful. I'm not even going to correct him, because first of all, the term Good Friday does never, never exist in the Bible. That's a man-made title, so there's nothing necessarily sacred about that title, so why not call it Great Friday? And in fact, some of you think every Friday is a Great Friday, right? T-G-I-F, you know? Loverboy said it best, everybody's working for the weekend, right? And some of you are way too old to know this, but a gal named Rebecca Black sang this thing, it's Friday, Friday, got to get down on Friday, partying, partying, yeah, party. Because anyway, it's like that kind of a Friday. But the Friday that we're talking about, this good Friday, this great Friday, is the exact opposite. In fact, it's, it's pretty dark. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This was Friday. What's so good about this? What's so great about this day of his death? You know, in the biographies of great men and women, they'll tell about their life, their accomplishments, the, 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 the the incredible lives that they live, and they'll talk about their death, but usually it's almost, almost like a footnote. It's just a, it's a little piece of the final chapter. But with Jesus' life and death, this event becomes the central tenet of all of it. It becomes so important. You know, if you were raised uh, in a Catholic background or maybe a high church background, uh, a, a big part of your upbringing was the Apostles' Creed, and maybe you recited it every weekend. The Apostles' Creed, which says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And then these next three lines, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. And depending on which tradition you were raised in, this might have said he descended to the dead or into the dead. We won't get into the, to the, the argument regarding that. And, and then it, it goes on. But these three lines, 
suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. That's Friday. That's Good Friday. That's Great Friday. Pretty dark. And maybe when you begin to think about what happened on that Friday, maybe when we use those initials TGIF, maybe they should stand for the grim, infamous Friday. This dark, dark Friday. And maybe we should refer to it, instead of waiting in line at Walmart as Black Friday, that this would be Black Friday because of what happened. Philip Yancey said this about that day. The might of the world, the most sophisticated religious system of its time, allied with the most powerful political empire, and arrays itself against a solitary figure, the only perfect man who ever lived. Here you have all of Judaism, the most sophisticated religious system. And the reigning world power, the Roman Empire, and for once they agree, for once they collaborate, for once they come together with one goal, one purpose, one mission. And all the power that they have religiously and all the power they have politically and military is all focused on getting rid of one individual man, Jesus. And so where we left off last weekend is they were in the upper room, they were having the Passover, and at most believe at around 11 or 11.30 that night, that Thursday night, Jesus and his disciples sang a hymn according to scripture. They left the upper room. They walked out of Jerusalem, down across the Kidron Valley, up onto the Mount of Olives to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. And at this point, it's nearing midnight on Thursday night, almost Friday. And your mama was right. Nothing good ever happens after midnight. That was definitely the case on this Friday. And so they go to this garden where I believe they've gone before. I believe this is not a first-time experience for Jesus and his disciples. This is something that they probably did regularly, a spot that Jesus probably loved when they were in Jerusalem. Otherwise, how would Judas know where to even go and find him? And so they go, but this time it's different. This night, Jesus is different. I mean... Jesus is not ever given to any kind of dramatic um, overstatements about himself. Granted, he uses hyperbole when he tells stories to make a point. But when he's talking about himself, he never does these dramatic overstatements. Those of you who've ever raised teenage daughters, that's common language for them. Not so with Jesus. So this is kind of out of character for him when he says this to his disciples. He said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That's pretty dramatic. Jesus is talking about himself here. And then you see the humanity of Christ. Stay here and keep watch with me. There were many times that Jesus had gone to pray, but he often went and most often went by himself. He went to a solitary place where he spent the night in prayer. He dismissed the crowds and then he sent his disciples on and then he went to the mountain to pray. Early in the morning while it was yet dark, he went out by himself to pray. Jesus often went to lonely places to pray. He would go and spend time with his father, but not this night. You see that humanity where he says, I, I don't want to be alone tonight. I need your help, guys. Stay here and pray with me. Don't leave me by myself. Not this time. And so they went to the garden. And as they were praying, he did walk a little farther beyond them. 
It says, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. There's a red, rare medical term called hematidrosis. This is what's happening here. Hematidrosis is when a person is under extreme emotional and or physical duress and stress. And there are capillaries that begin to burst and begin to seep into the sweat glands. It happens with extreme emotional and physical stress. And this is happening to Jesus. And the events that unfold at this point being probably about one in the morning on Friday, the start of this Good Friday. The events that unfold over the next 12 to 15 hours, some would say, are a sign to show how weak Jesus is. That he would be arrested, that he would be tried, that he would be crucified, and never put up any resistance, never try to fight it. That it shows this weakness. But I would counter with that and say, it actually, in fact, shows the opposite. There's this term that sometimes is misunderstood, and it's the term meekness. And meekness means strength under control. It doesn't mean weakness. It means strength under control. And you think about how Jesus could have given a display of his power. He could have given a display of his power by resisting these guys as they came. He could have given a display of his power by re, you know, reacting and, and, and fighting back retaliating with what they had done. But I think he shows the greatest, the greatest display of power by restraining what he could do and choosing what he will do. That he shows unbelievable amounts of restraint in these next hours. Let me give you just some examples of this that, that I think are, are amazing. When Judas comes to him, Judas says, greetings, Rabbi. Greetings, that's, that's a nice salutation. Rabbi, that's a term of, of, of honor and, and, you know, my teacher. And kissed him. This display of affection. That Judas had it set up to use a display of affection, a kiss. Something that you would do to someone who is close to you, someone you love, someone who is, you, you know, you, your friend. He kissed him, and that kiss becomes the lethal bite of a rabid dog. And Jesus knows what this kiss means. And look at his restraint and look at the way he responds. Friend. Now, there's a lot of things I'd call Judas at that point, but friend would not be one of them. Friend. You see this unquenchable love of Jesus. You see this, this restraint from what our human reaction would be. That he would have love and still call friend even his betrayer, and maybe especially his betrayer. Friend, he says, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. Now, you could come to the conclusion that Jesus had no options. The fight or flight options were not, they were not realistic. He knew that he couldn't outfight this number of people with clubs and swords and, and you know, torches and all that. Or that the flight would be, would be, you know, futile because they would catch up to him. There were too many that would chase him. And that somehow he finds himself painted in the corner, and so he concedes and he just lays down and says, okay, fine. That is not the case. In fact, when one of his disciples decides to retaliate and take things into his own hand, pulls out the sword, cuts off Malchus's ear, that whole thing, Jesus fixes all that up. Look at his response. Do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once 
put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. A legion was a company of 6,000 troops in the Roman army at that time. So do the math. He says, do you don't think that right now I could just say, hey, Father, send about 72,000 down here. I can use them right now. You don't think I could do that? But how then would the scripture be fulfilled that says it must happen in this way? Like Jesus would even need 72,000 angels to take on this motley crew, this, this lynch mob that's come out after him. His display of strength was restraining what he could do. And remember what we looked at two weeks ago, just hours before when he was upstairs in that room across the valley. He knew this out of John 13. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. He didn't even need this, the 72,000 angels. He had all power. And then as they arrest him, let me ask you, what takes more strength? When someone does you wrong, to match them in that, to retaliate, or to choose not to? Look how he's treated. And they spit in his face and struck him with their fists, and others slapped him. What takes more strength? To spit back, to hit back, to slap back, or to just let it happen? And maybe in this moment, Jesus thinks back to the teachings that he gave. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. And when they slap you on your right cheek, turn the other cheek. He lives the very words that he taught. And he displays strength and restraint. Well, later as he's arrested, he stands before Pilate. And Pilate begins to question him. And instead of responding or, or reacting to the questions or defending himself... In fulfilling Isaiah 53, 7, he doesn't answer Pilate's questions. He doesn't engage. He doesn't get defensive. He doesn't try to build his case. And Pilate says to him, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? To which Jesus answered, you would have no, go back please. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. See, this display of power from Jesus to restrain, to not do what, what humanly we think he should do or could do. But he restrains. So today, I want us to look at some of the things that happened on that Friday, specifically from about 8 a.m. to about 3 p.m. And if you have your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 27. I'll say this, that today we're going to be reading a little more scripture than we normally do in this setting um, and if, if you want to follow along, that would be great. Matthew chapter 27. From the time that Jesus was arrested until the time we pick up on it, uh, and, and Pastor Kip mentioned this last week, Jesus undergoes six trials. He goes before Annas, who is the father-in-law of Caiaphas. He goes before Caiaphas, who is the high priest. He goes back and forth between Pilate and Herod Antipas several times. And we get through all of that. He's been up all night. He's been mistreated. His disciples have betrayed him, have denied him, have deserted him. And now he stands before Pilate. And this is where we pick up in Matthew chapter 27, verse 22. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ, Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. 
to which they don't give an answer to that question. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. What Pilate does is he says, listen, you're asking for him to be crucified. And I'm just telling you, if we do that, the guilt is not on me, it's on you. I'm innocent of this man's blood. My hands are clean in this situation. You're the ones that are calling for it. And their response is very interesting to me. Because while their response of how they respond to Pilate in this situation are words that are filled with angry, angry anger and hatred, these words that, that, that are directed at Jesus, unbeknownst to them, as they speak these words of anger and hatred, they will become prophetic words of incredible grace. And this just shows you the amazing way of our great God. You remember in Genesis chapter 50, a little rabbit trail here, where Joseph stands before his brothers and says, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Here these people are going to say something that they mean to be evil, angry, hate-filled, and God will use those very words to show grace and love and forgiveness. Their response is this. All the people answered, let his blood be on us and our children. Like, we'll take the responsibility. And we'll even throw our kids under the bus. We'll put the blame on them. We will let the guilt of this man's blood be on us. And what they don't realize they're saying is that it's only by this man's blood on them that their guilt will be taken away. Just as Pastor Kip talked about last week, the blood over the doorpost for them and their children of an innocent lamb would spare their lives. Now the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, would be on them and their children to save them. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What an amazing God. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged, and he handed him over to be crucified. The, the flogging was a, a very, very painful and cruel thing. It was, it was done with a, with a short whip called a cat of nine tails, strands of leather that had uh, within it pieces of bone and lead and such things. And the prisoner would be stripped completely naked with his hands you know, uh, restrained above his head, usually on a post, and so that his whole entire back and buttocks and, and hamstrings and, and calves were all exposed. And the Roman guards would use this cat of nine tails and bring it down upon his back, upon his buttocks, upon his legs. And the little pieces of lead would cause contusions and bruising and, 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 uh, and weakening the skin. And the pieces of bone would sink in, and as they would rip it again, it would cause these lacerations. Very often, it was not uncommon for the prisoner to not survive the scourging or the flogging. As his back and his buttocks and his legs began to rip up the loss of blood and the lower part of his back, when his bowels would be exposed, his entrails would begin to spill out, it was very common that, that a prisoner would die just in the flogging. And so when Jesus is flogged, his back is completely laid open, loss of blood, and it goes on. Then the governor's soldier took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him 
and then twisted together a crown of thorns to set on his head. The scarlet being a, a color of royalty was, was mockery. And I remember as a child always thinking about the crown of thorns being put on his head and the pain of those thorns piercing his brow, piercing his scalp, piercing into his skull. And thinking about the physical pain of the crown of thorns. And while that is true, the reason they're doing this is not so much for the physical pain. It's to make sport of him. It's to belittle him. It's to humiliate him. It's to beat him down, to wear him down emotionally. He claimed to be the king of the Jews. And what king would be without a crown? And so they put the crown of thorns on his head and mocked him. Goes on. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. Now let's just stop right there for a minute. Here they are, kneeling down in front of him in a sign of disrespect, saying mocking words to him. And Jesus knows that there will come a day because the Father will give him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here they are kneeling before him in mockery, but there will come a day when they will kneel before him in honor, respect, and worship. Here they are spitting out the words that make fun of him. And someday they will be revering his name as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And they spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. And after they mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. The spikes being driven through his wrists, through his feet, carrying the weight of the cross. The Romans didn't create crucifixion. They just perfected it. The Romans perfected crucifixion to be the slowest, most agonizing, most humiliating, most painful, torturous way that anyone could ever die. In fact, our word excruciating, literally translated means out of the cross. That word came from crucifixion, excruciating. And so Jesus is crucified on this Friday. Again, if, if you come out of a Catholic background, you're very familiar with the stations of the cross. These events that happened on this Friday. In fact, a little side note for those of you who don't come out of a Catholic background. If you ever go to a Catholic church, if you're ever in the sanctuary of a Catholic church, it doesn't matter how big, how small, if it's a cathedral, if it's a small Catholic church in some foreign little country, Every sanctuary in a Catholic church will have around the perimeter the Stations of the Cross. There may be pictures, there may be statues, there may be icons, they may be nothing more than numbers. But it's Stations of the Cross to remember what Christ went through. So they crucified him. 
and he's hanging there on the cross. And above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. Let me ask you, how much restraint does it take when it would be very easy for him to come down from the cross and say, okay. But he chooses not to. They mock him. And in the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders, the religious leaders, those who represent God to the people, mock him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. This is blasphemy. The strength that Jesus displayed by not saying, hey, Father, now the 72,000, send them on down. Or, you know what? I think I will just go down off the cross. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Everyone who sees him is mocking him and heaping insults on him. The Roman guards are. The religious leaders are. The common folks who are passing by are. The thieves on the cross are. And the way crucifixion works is that the way the arms are fixed Breathing, aspiration, is very difficult. In fact, usually the common death would be eventually this asphyxiation. Because in order to breathe, to pull yourself up on these nail-pierced arms was very difficult. And the angle, it was actually easier to inhale and far more difficult to exhale and to get rid of the, the, the CO2, I mean, to, to get that out. And so in order for him to even speak was a very painful thing. That's why the things that he utters on the cross are very short sentences. It was very, very painful to even speak in that position. And as he hangs there, there are statements that he utters. But one that to me is maybe the most profound. Because he had, he had taught. He had taught as one having authorities, not like the teachers of the law. They saw something. The way he taught. Such power, like underscored, italicized, bold with exclamation points. But all of those things and all those exclamation points on the cross become a question mark. All the things he says with, with these exclamation points, suddenly that's transferred and he, and he changes it and he asks with a question mark. He had always taught with exclamation points. When the Pharisees asked him if he was greater than Abraham, he says, before Abraham was born, I am, exclamation point. When he came to them and confronted them, he says, you, you, you Pharisees, you teachers of the law, you hypocrites, exclamation point. When he said to the demons, be quiet, get out, exclamation point. When he said to the centurion, go, exclamation point. When he spoke to the deaf ears, be opened. Exclamation point. When he said to his disciples, take courage! Exclamation point. 
When he said to the wind, be quiet. When he said to the waves, be still, exclamation point. When he spoke to Jairus' little daughter, get up, exclamation point. And called to his friend Lazarus, come out, exclamation point. Everything he says with confidence, with power, with authority, with exclamation points. And now it becomes a question mark. And as he hangs on the cross, he quotes the first line of a psalm that he's memorized even as a little boy. He quotes the first line of a psalm that he knows was prophetic about him. He quotes the first line of a psalm that he knows was about this moment. He quotes the first line of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Question mark. Why are you so far from saving me? Questions. So far from the words of my groanings? Question mark. Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night and am not silent. You know, in all of the Gospels, this is the only time when Jesus prays that he doesn't use the term Abba or Father. This is the only time he uses this phrase. Every other time he prays, it's this, this relationship, this intimacy, Father, Papa, Abba. But at this point, he says, God, there's this distance. Something's different here. Why have you forsaken me? Deuteronomy 31 says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. But God, why have you forsaken me? He experiences true God-forsakenness. And as all of this is going on, the very world around, the physical world, begins to groan and react. And as he's hanging there on the cross, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, Darkness came over all the land. What is going on here? My God, why have you forsaken me? Hold on to that for a minute. Some of you may be aware that the last two years in May, 2015, 2016 in May, um, I had the privilege to travel to South Africa to participate in the world's oldest and largest ultramarathon, Comrades Marathon. It's an amazing thing. And there's, there's some uh, interesting aspects of this ultramarathon. One of them is that um, it's unprecedented in the size um, of participants, 20,000, to do an ultramarathon. And another unique piece of that is with 20,000, there's a wave start. So if you're at the back, you may actually start the race eight minutes after it started which kind of goes against your time. And in most races, at least here in the States, they'll have a chip time, so your time actually doesn't start until you've st crossed the, the starting line. Not so in comrades. There's only gun time. When the gun goes off, that begins your time. And they have a very, very strict and strongly enforced rule that you must be finished within 12 hours. No, no grace beyond that. 12 hours. And at the end, it's a pretty dramatic moment as it's coming down to the final seconds, actually. And at the 12-hour point, 
the South African national rugby team make a human barrier across the finish line so that no one else can cross. And in a dramatic sign of finality, the race director turns his back on anyone who is still on the course. And at that point, it doesn't matter if you're a mile and a half out, 150 yards out, or 15 feet out. When the race director turns his back to you, it's over. It's a very, very emotional moment for those who are that close, who've just run 56 miles, whose bodies are cramping up, who are suffering from dehydration and nauseated, the whole thing, and they can't finish the line. They don't get a finisher's medal. They don't get to go across the finish line. They don't get their picture taken, and their name doesn't even go in the records as it does not finish. It's as if they never ran the race or took the first step. And as Jesus comes to the finish line of his life, having given everything, having done nothing but been obedient to what the Father had for him, having lived a perfect, flawless, sinless life, he comes to the finish line, and the Father turns his face away, turns his back on him, and he cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there is no theologian on the face of this planet that can adequately explain what is happening in the Trinity at that moment. To have this moment where God turns his face away. You know, in that last moment, what is happening with Jesus? What is happening with the Father? I just want to show you how each of the gospel writers record that last moment. Matthew says this, And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Mark says, With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Luke says, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. And John says, When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Such a violent event that the all-powerful, infinite creator of the universe dies on a cross. And all of nature groans and reacts. The darkness, there's an earthquake. The veil in the temple is ripped from top to bottom. Rocks split open, tombs split open, and those who have died come back to life. And then at 3 p.m., there's just silence. There's this great silence, this deafening silence like our world has never heard. For all of eternity, the angelic beings had been circling Jesus, saying, holy, 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 the Lord, you know, God Almighty. Isaiah had seen that. When Jesus was born, the angels were rejoicing. Glory to God in the highest, on earth, peace to men. Just a week before, the people were rejoicing. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now there's nothing but silence. And here's where we're at a great disadvantage with this Good Friday event. Is that we know the end of the story. We know what's going to happen. 
And so while this is very dark, we quickly go to, yeah, but. Tony Campolo made famous that preacher years ago, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Listen, his disciples don't know that Sunday's coming. There's nothing but darkness for them. They don't know that there will be another day. There's nothing but despair. They don't know that there's hope just around the corner. There's nothing but silence. They don't know that there will be rejoicing again. There's only death. They're not even expecting or looking for a resurrection. And for the next 40 hours, they live in that despair, that hopelessness, that darkness. And they go through Friday. And then they wake up on Saturday. And nothing has changed. Now, it's interesting that Saturday. You know, in, in these four days we're looking at, over church history, we've given names to Thursday. It's referred to as Maundy Thursday. Friday, as we've been talking about, is referred to as Good Friday. Sunday is referred to Resurrection Sunday. Saturday doesn't even get a name. What about Saturday? It's dark. It's hopeless. And it's silent. What, what happened on Saturday? People have debated this for years. Is this what happened like in the Apostles' Creed? He descended into hell? Did he go to preach to those who were in prison who had died before Noah, as it says in 1 Peter 3? Is he in paradise like he said to the, to the thief on the cross this day? Be with well, where's Jesus? Saturday is the only day in the last 2,000 years when no one believed that Jesus was alive. It's the only day. No one believed it. It's just this silence, this nameless, this in-between. And I think it's important for us to pause in that nameless in-between sometimes. Because we so quickly jump to Easter. We so quickly jump to the resurrection. And we forget. And maybe it's good for us to pause and reflect on that time. Not so that we feel guilty, but so that we remember the amount of love that was shown in those moments. We don't quickly forget the kind of pain that was endured. We don't lose sight of the price that was paid. Hebrews chapter 12 says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, which is great advice for every day of our lives. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorn, and shame, and sat down at the right hand of, of the throne of God. We want to fix our eyes on the author and perfecter, the one who started it, completed it, it's done deal, it's a package deal for us. We want to fix our eyes on that Jesus. We want to fix our eyes on the Jesus who has joy and who now sits down at the right hand of the throne of God, this victorious Jesus, this conquering Jesus. We want to fix our eyes on that Jesus. But maybe it's good to fix our eyes. Go back, please. Fix our eyes on the one who endured the cross and the shame that was associated with it. Just for a moment. To not quickly jump to Sunday morning. 
So I want, just for a moment today, for us to look at three verses that help us fix our eyes on that. Isaiah 53 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Or how about in Corinthians? God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Not to take our sin, to become our sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. We're out of Galatians. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written out of Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Some of these verses are very familiar to some of us because we've grown up in the church and we've heard them a lot. And we get it conceptually. We understand substitutionary atonement. We, you know, it's a little strange to us, but we get the concept. We understand the theology behind it. But maybe it would be helpful for us to take it out of the conceptual and out of the theological and bring it home and make it personal. What if we read these verses this way? But he was pierced for my transgressions. And he was crushed for my iniquities. And the punishment that brought me peace was upon him. And by his wounds, I am healed. Because God made him who had no sin to be sin for me so that I might become the righteousness of God. And Christ redeemed me from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for me. For it is written, curse is everyone who is hung on a tree. See, it was my sin that did all this to Jesus. And had I been there, I would have been mocking him along with everyone else. The best case scenario that I could hope for is that I would have simply deserted him like the disciples. But I'm the one. And it was for me that he would do this. To not quickly jump over Friday and Saturday. Not for the sense of sake of trying to make us feel guilty but for an enhanced greater gratitude for what he's done. Not to beat ourselves down, but to willingly bow down. Not to make us feel bad so that, that we somehow distance ourselves from God, but to understand that we are blessed so that we will walk closer with him. See, it's so easy for us because God's forgiveness and grace is so lavish and so abundant. It's so easy for us to say, well, yeah, he, God will always forgive. God's grace is amazing. He just keeps pouring it out. And in so doing, very often, we will downplay what our sin cost. And maybe to just reflect on that for a bit, it reminds us, and we can remember how seriously 
God takes our sin, how seriously he takes my sin. And to recognize that I'm no different and I would have been saying, let his blood be on me and my children. And God would turn that around and say, his blood will be on you and your children. But not to make you guilty, to make you innocent. Here's what I want to challenge you with this week, because we're going into Easter. It's a crazy week. I know for some of us it's a very, very busy week. I want to challenge us to pause this week in that nameless in-between. And here's what I want to challenge you to do. Sometime this week, and this is written in your link, but I'm going to add to it. Sometime in your week that you would read and reflect on Matthew 26 and 27, Psalm 22, which Jesus quoted on the cross. And I'll add to that. You can write this down. Isaiah 53, the prophecies leading up to that. And I'll just say these four chapters... Matthew 26 and 27, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, they're not short chapters. This isn't a thing where you're sitting at a stoplight and think, oh yeah, I'll reflect on those. You need to carve out some time to do this. To spend some time. Not to feel guilty, but to be unbelievably grateful. Not to make your life worse, but to enhance your worship. And then, I know I've gone long today. I cut 10 minutes out of this sermon already. And I'm going to share those Wednesday night at the refuge. And maybe part of your week this week would be to join us in this room as we take communion, as we follow the example of Christ, as we look into his word and remember what he's done for us. We're going to close. and Janice and Naomi are going to have a song for us. And I'm going to ask that you would just remain seated, that you not sing along. It's a song that we sing. It's a wonderful song. But today, don't sing it. The words will be on the side screen. But I want you to let these words just be sung over us and meditate on what Jesus has done for us. And then I'll close this in prayer.